Elections have consequences, and we are still predicting the consequences of the July 1st Mexican presidential elections. My name is Richard Miles, host of 35 West, and I have with me this morning, along with his tea leaves and crystal ball, the Honorable Duncan Wood, the esteemed director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center here in Washington. Welcome to 35 West, Duncan. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. Uh, now, Duncan, you're one of the smartest people in town when it comes to Mexico. But before we hear just how smart you are, let's talk about the early days of Duncan Wood. Uh, tell, tell me a little <laughs> bit about your sort of pre-professional life. Um, and I'm, I'm going on a limb here based on your accent, guessing you were not born in the United States. You're a very, very perceptive man. Um, so I was, uh, I was born and raised in the southeast of England, in Kent. I grew up in a very small village called Staplehurst, which has 6,000 people. Um, there's absolutely nothing to do in the village apart from the church, the pubs, and the cricket and tennis club. And so that's how I spent my that youth. That sounds like plenty to do. What are you talking well, about? Absolutely. I mean, it meant that I began drinking at a very young age. But anyway, you know, I went to university uh, up in the Midlands in, at the University of Leicester, and that's where I really fell in love with politics. On a whim, I decided to go and study my graduate uh, studies over in Canada. Um, had nothing to do with Mexico, was completely ignorant about the country, more or less could point it out on a map. And then as I was finishing my PhD, I was given an opportunity to go and work there for a couple of years. And I arrived in Mexico in, the, in January of 1996. So, you know, less than two years after the peso crisis, really, I was, the you know, country was still very economically and financially fragile. Um, there were very high levels of violence and insecurity in Mexico City at that time. It was totally different to what I was used to because I'd been living in Toronto prior to that, one of the most you know, orderly, safe Safest, cities in the yeah. world. And I was completely confused by Mexico. And as time went on, I began to, uh, to be begin to get a nascent understanding for the society and for the political system. And I ended up staying in Mexico for 17 years. And I taught all that time at the ITAM in Mexico City, which is a fine private university down there. Um, and, you know, I, I established extensive networks, obviously, with the students and with other professors and with government officials. And then in 2012, I had the opportunity to, uh, to come up to Washington and uh, to take over the directorship of the Mexico Institute. Um, Andrew Seeley had just been uh, sort of promoted within the Wilson Center. And, of course, he founded the Mexico Institute, which, uh, you know, was a, a, a terrific institution at the time. And uh, I had the opportunity to come in and follow in his, in his footsteps. And uh, it's been a fabulous five and a half years since then. Um, very, very interesting times. Um, my knowledge of Mexico has, in fact, you know, increased since I left the country. It does give you another perspective, but one of the most important things that I find is to be present in Mexico. I go every two to three weeks just so I can sit at the table and listen to the gossip as much as anything. Because, you know, we live in a globalized world. We can read the newspapers. We can watch the news. But actually being there and hearing and feeling what's happening in the country makes a huge difference. So I am an unabashed fan of Mexico. I'm in love with the country. My children were born there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I know that I'll always have a deep connection to the country. Uh, so, Duncan, before we jump in and, and start talking about the election, um, does this sort of run in the family? I mean, were, were your parents academics? Were they diplomats? You know, it was sort of or did they just come out of nowhere? It kind of came out of nowhere. I was the first person in my university to go to, in my family to go to university. Um, and uh, my father was a government servant. He worked uh, in the cabinet office, uh, uh, worked very closely with, uh, with Margaret Thatcher um, for, uh, for a large number of years. Um, my mother um, was uh, 
uh, well, she began as a secretary receptionist, and she ended up actually as the owner of a uh, of a manufacturer of ambulances in uh, in Britain. Which uh, you know, she had a, a great talent for business, um, but nobody was really that interested in uh, global politics. Uh, my father would get the Economist, and I would steal that from him and read it. <laughs> but that was the closest that that it came, and so. Uh, yeah, it was just something different. And, and nobody in my family had really lived outside of England before. And uh, it just seemed like something new and fresh for me. So you went from not knowing where Mexico was on the map to knowing uh, almost everything there is to know about Mexico, certainly about politics. So let's talk about the election of July 1st, which was a big deal. I think it was a big deal. Um, and we had uh, Shannon O'Neill. We did a quick look at sort of the numbers uh, in terms of the electoral victory. Um, and, and they were very impressive. I mean, sort of 53% vote for AMLO, majorities in both houses, a majority in 30 of the 32 states. Um, help us fit this in terms of modern Mexican politics. How big a deal was AMLO's victory? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, we all knew that he was going to win, but we didn't have really a clear idea about the scale of the victory. And it's truly historic. It's historic in the democratic era. I was lucky enough to be there in Mexico City on the night of the election. I was there in the Zocalo. And uh, uh, for those people who know Mexico City well, there's a hotel called the Majestic Hotel, which has rooms overlooking the, the Zocalo. And I was up there in one of those rooms, and I was looking out over the Zocalo, and I saw the, the, the Zocalo fill up with people. And the atmosphere of joy and celebration was palpable. And at the end of the night, around midnight, when I left... Um, and walking through the streets in the, in the Centro Historico. It was truly a celebration. There was no sense of rancor or anger or revenge. It was, look, our guy won. And that helped me to understand what had happened that day. It helped me to understand that it wasn't just a vote against the establishment. It was a vote in favor of somebody that the 53% believed could bring them hope, could bring them change. And so... I think that helps us to understand why he got so many votes, why the Morena wave swept across the country. And when you put it in historic context, this hasn't happened in the democratic era. You know, the last person to, uh, the last president to get that ki those kind of numbers was really before democratization took place in Mexico. And Andres Manuel achieved something remarkable. He managed to not only capture the sense that something's wrong in Mexico, but that something can change. And Richard, you know Mexico and Mexicans you know, very, very well. And so the conversations that you have with Mexicans are, they're skeptical, they're cynical sometimes. Um, you know, they, they, they have this sentido de amor negro, this black humor where they'll, they'll kind of make fun of their own country and of their own, their own situation. But on this particular occasion, I think people voted for something that they believe could change the country. And we've seen that since the election. We've seen it in terms of the expectations, which are extraordinarily, I would even argue, dangerously high. You see it in, in indicators like consumer confidence, which is at historic highs in Mexico. Even at the international level, I mean, until this week where we've seen the peso get battered because of what's happening in Turkey, um, you know, investors have been continuing to uh, hold confidence in, in, in Mexico. So there are ex high expectations for this administration, and that's based upon the fact that Andres Manuel López Obrador has a golden opportunity to actually come up with a plan for running Mexico at this point in time. 
So there, there are at least two broad stereotypes when we when we think of AMLO or, uh, you know, from his critics and supporters alike. Uh, one is sort of what I would, I would term the, the rabble rouser image, right? Sort of the, the left wing um, agitator, you know, uh, started out as a, as a priesta in the 70s, sort of advocating for a, you know, a lot of left wing causes. Of course, in, in 2006, sort of the big demonstration, sort of questioning the, uh, the legitimacy of the election. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got those other views like, no, no, AMLO is actually fairly pragmatic, uh, did a decent job as mayor of Mexico City. Um, so on December 1st, when he actually takes power, who, which of these two is going to show up, the, the rabble rouser or the pragmatist? So that, that term that people use to describe Andres Manuel, they call, they call him the firebrand leftist. I, I always have my doubts about that. Um, you know, I've met the guy on one occasion. I was lucky enough to you know, sort of interview him on stage at the Wilson Center, and that was, that was terrific. But you don't – I mean, I, clearly I don't know the man. But I, I've spoken to a number of people who know him well or who claim to know him well. And certain things emerge. And one is that he's very, very interested in how to get things done, which suggests the pragmatist there. You, know, you look at his, say, his time as mayor of Mexico City, which is the thing that everybody refers to. And they say, yeah, look, I mean, he was pragmatic. But I think a lot of people forget what his election uh, campaigns were like in 2006 and 2012. A lot of the policies that he's espousing today were actually there in the policy documents from those two elections. It's not that this is a, uh, a brand new departure for him. It's much more that he has always seen the necessity of maintaining economic stability in Mexico. Left wing or right wing, I feel, is generally not the question. The question for him is, how is he going to get things done? How is he going to govern? And in particular, I think he's recognized that economic stability and maintaining investor confidence is fundamental. His speech on election night, I think, was indicative. He said, I want to be a good president. I think if you actually analyze the language that he uses, he wants to be a great president. And he knows that he cannot be a good or a great president if there's an economic or financial crisis during his sexenio. And so he wants to avoid that at all costs. And a number of his advisors mentioned this to me in the period running up to the, ele up to the election. They said his biggest nightmare would be a run on the peso or capital flight on July 2nd or on December 2nd. What he wants is he wants to be able to have stability, prosperity for Mexico so that he can do the things that he wants to do. Um, you know, in the political world, a lot hinges on expectations. So he, he got this big mandate. But what do you think Mexicans are expecting of AMLO? Of course, the two big themes in the campaign, of course, were corruption and violence. And uh, he campaigned very successfully on fighting corruption and reducing violence. Um, Beyond that, are, are there expectations that they want to see, Mexicans, uh, those who voted for him or those who didn't vote for him? And in a sense, what sort of mandate does he have during his sexenio? So expectations are, are funny things because it doesn't necessarily coincide with what the government is, has promised. Um, but certainly I think that there is a, a belief that Andres Manuel is different to the established form of politics in Mexico, that he will change the way that things operate. Um, 
In terms of corruption, I've actually you know, had conversations over the past few weeks in Mexico with people um, who are very skeptical about whether the corruption question or problem will be solved under this administration. And I think rightly so. It's a huge problem in the country. Um, but they're more optimistic that there will be less theft, that there will be lower levels of corruption, um, and that money that is destined for social programs might actually end up where it's supposed to go. And these are quite modest expectations, if you think about it, but they matter a great deal. And, you know, again, I'm sure you've had the same conversations as I've had in Mexico with taxi drivers and people in the street who say to you, we're a rich country. Why are we so poor? And I think people want to see that change a little bit. Um, there is certainly a sense that uh, the past uh, 20 years, the experiment with democratization, uh, the 30-year experiment with opening up of Mexico, may have been good for the macroeconomy. Mexico has grown, but it hasn't been good for the majority of Mexicans. Or at least they, the belief is that it should have been a lot better for the majority of Mexicans. So I think that there's this kind of nebulous expectation that things will improve, that things are going to get better without necessarily being defined one way or the other. You couldn't point to the fact that, you know, are Mexicans excited about the fact that the, the national airport project will be canceled or that there will be two new refineries? Nobody really cares about that. It's just a feeling that, well, maybe things will work a little bit better. In the last few days, we've started to see um, Andres Manuel roll out some specifics in terms of policy proposals that he intends to pursue. And the one that has drawn a lot of attention is this idea of essentially creating uh, individual representatives of the federal government um, in each one of the 32 states that are answerable essentially only to the federal government as a conduit for uh, federal development money or infrastructure money and so on. Um, this has just been, you know, sort of socialized in the last few days, starting to get some reaction. Let me get your take on that. Is that, is that a good idea? Because on, on one hand, I, I think, okay, well, great, uh, fight corruption at the state level. On the other hand, um, you know, is it, is it blurring the line in Mexico's federal system? Yes and yes. Okay, yeah. um, so, so, so let's begin with the diagnosis of the problem, which I think is something that Andres Manuel and his team share with a lot of Mexican uh, analysts and academics, which is that the country has really become ungovernable. Um, uh, you know, my colleague, uh, Luis Rubio, who has written, you know, a number of books for us at the, at the Wilson Center, but you know his his recent trilogy of books on the the challenge of the rule of law in Mexico. I mean, in in that he identified that the way that the entire system had been set up after the revolution um, no longer uh, really fit the model that had come with uh, democratization and decentralization, and in particular, you know the fact that you have you've seen this decentralization of power from the federal to the state governments, in particular, devolution of financial independence to them, block grants being given by the Mexican Congress and the Mexican uh, federal government to the governors without any kind of accountability to them. We had this situation, uh, you know, years ago when uh, the Mexican president, if he saw a problem emerging in one of the states, he'd call the governor and he'd say, you know, sort this out. Otherwise, I'm going to have to come and intervene and that's not going to be good for you. And the governor would respond. We've seen that transition to uh, a situation, I think, during the, the, this uh, sexenio where governors don't always even pick up the phone when the president calls. 
And that's not the way the system was set up to be. There was supposed to be a strong executive power in Mexico. This has meant that, yes, the problem of corruption, the problem of insecurity, the rule of law, um, the huge gap in economic development between the, you know, the north and the south of Mexico, all of these are problems which have become intractable under the current system. Andres Manuel's diagnosis is that the, the solution to this is re-centralization of power. So the example that you've given of his, uh, his, his you know, pro-consuls being sent out to the states, that's one way of doing it. But another way is, of course, through the Morena party itself. This, this wave of Morena victories in the, at the, state le- uh, uh, the level of the state legislatures. Uh, he now controls 19 out of 32 of those. And then, of course, um, you know, he won five out of the governorships this, uh, this summer. And that will continue, I predict, into next year and the year after, leading up to the midterm elections in 2021. He already has these dominant, dominant majorities in the Congress. And then I think that we see something else going on as well. Um, the, what he calls the decentralization of government agencies, where he's moving uh, certain government agencies outside of Mexico City. So uh, energy will be sent to Tabasco. Uh, migración will be up in Tijuana. That, that is, and, and then to combine that with the fact that he wants to slash um, some of the most important positions in the public service. He wants to slash the wages of the altos funcionarios, the the high-level bureaucrats. He wants to take away their benefits. This is actually a weakening of the federal bureaucracy, which seems contradictory to what I've said already. But in fact, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a clearing out of the bureaucracy, which will weaken it vis-a-vis the presidency. And the president will now be able to impose his will over those government agencies in a way that previous presidents haven't necessarily been able to. This all results, I think, in a a massive recentralization of power. So, one, I think the diagnosis is actually correct. Two, the solution is uh, a, a, a very pragmatic one. Number three, I think that Andres Manuel might be able to achieve some very important things with this. But four, this is a very worrying tendency because you're putting an enormous amount of power into the hands of the executive branch and in particular into the uh, position of the presidency. And I think that you know, there is ample scope for that to be abused, either in this administration or in future administrations. Uh, Duncan, up until now, we have not talked about the United States. But of course, there's a lot on the table right now at the, at the bilateral uh, level, sort of high-level issues. Um, first and foremost, of course, NAFTA. We've heard nothing but NAFTA essentially for the last uh, you know, six to nine months. Um, and then the tariffs, uh, and the, the, both the ones the United States has imposed and sort of Mexico's countervailing tariffs. But then in addition to that, of course, we have very uh, hot issues like migration, uh, border security, uh, security cooperation in general, um, energy, uh, and then issue, regional issues like Venezuela and so on. So looking over sort of that uh, scenario of various issues and looking at the personalities now coming into play, um, Donald Trump on one hand and uh, AMLO on the other, if you had to bet, where is the the first bilateral crisis going to occur among these range of issues? So first of all, I think that the groundwork that's been laid during this transition period is very, very encouraging. Um, Yeah, I mean... We've all spoken to folks in the current U.S. administration, and you know it's clear that there was there was anxiety about an Andres Manuel victory. What would that mean? But I think that uh, Amlo's team sent very clear signals uh, 
um, during the campaign and immediately after the election victory to say, don't worry, we're going to continue cooperating on questions of migration and security, which we know you care about as much as anything else. We want to get a win-win solution on NAFTA, which may or may not be possible. Um, and then, of course, you have that positive initial interaction between Trump and AMLO, uh, the congratulatory tweet, the friendly phone call, the letter, which in my opinion was a stroke of genius on the part of Andres Manuel. You know, he managed to get send a seven-page letter to Donald Trump, which meant that he got to say exactly what he wanted to say uninterrupted and even got a one-page response from, from, from Donald Trump, which said, you know, essentially a, uh, a prosperous Mexico would make me very happy. I mean, that, that's an incredible endorsement of the relationship. But nobody, I don't think, is blind enough to think, well, this means that they're going to be best buds forever. You know, this, this is not a BFF situation. Both of these men are going to respond to domestic political impulses. And we've already seen Donald Trump uh, attacking Mexico on questions of uh, public security and violence. Um, and you know, whilst things are going well in the NAFTA negotiations right now on a bilateral basis, it's not guaranteed that that's going to continue. So where do I see the first big uh, breach happening? Well, I think that one of the things that we'll see is after the summer, um, you know, right now, because of the, the heat, there are less Central Americans moving up through Mexico than there are in the other times of the year. So in the fall of this year, we may see those numbers beginning to spike. And if that creates political pressures here in the U.S., or at least it attracts media attention, then President Trump may well decide to say Mexico's not doing enough. The good news is this. A long transition from July 1st to December 1st means that Andres Manuel is not responsible for this yet. And so he has the opportunity to actually sit back and say, this is Enrique Peña Nieto's problem. I don't need to respond at this point in time. And we're, we're going to see whether or not he has that kind of self-restraint and self-control to do that. Um, we've already seen that, uh, you know, he's been tempted to respond more vigorously, shall we say, to some of Donald Trump's statements. Um, but I think that the first big test is going to be December of this year when Andres Manuel comes in. He takes over the presidency. There should be some more kind messages coming through from Washington. But in early 2019 whether it is an outbreak of violence, whether there is new evidence on um, opioids, fentanyl in particular, coming into the United States, um, or whether it is the question of you know, a crisis at Mexico's northern border with the United States, Central Americans pushing their way up. That's when I think we can see the first real tension. One thing that really struck me during the election and surprised me, to be honest, was how little the United States actually came up during the Mexican presidential campaign. And this despite the fact that you had a lot of, uh, on the U.S. side, it actually, you know, the, uh, the Central American migration, um, uh, a lot of incendiary rhetoric coming out of the White House. And it didn't get very much of a reaction from what I could see in Mexico. In fact, I, I remember, I think it was when AMLO came up and you interviewed him here at, in, in Washington. And I think on that very day, if I'm not mistaken, is when the administration rescinded DACA. That's right. And I was expecting, and I think everyone in the room was expecting, that AMLA would take this as an opportunity to really launch in and defend. I seem to recall gave a very sort of 
plain vanilla response in terms of, well, you know, who am I to say? <laughs> I think we also are left a little bit deflated, like we hadn't gotten our money's worth. You exactly. Know, this firebrand. Uh, yeah. And that's when I knew that this was something different was going on in turn, at the political level. Now, if we, if we uh, Andrew Seeley came out a great book a few months ago, Vanishing Frontiers. Um, I had him on the show talking about it. And his thesis there, which I think you probably agree with, is that at many, many levels over the last quarter century, you have Mexico and the United States drawing together in, in sometimes surprising ways. Does this mean now that uh, political leaders and the pl- high-level political process, specifically between the U.S. and Mexico, doesn't matter as much as it used to, say, when you first moved there in, in the 90s? I think that's certainly true. And uh, uh, my colleague, Laura Dawson, published a, a very nice piece in uh, the Globe and Mail recently talking about the Canada-Mexico relationship. Um, and she made the, the point that she said, look, Mexico has something that we in Canada don't have, which is that they matter to the United States in terms of security and in terms of migration. They have other cards to play. But of course, it goes far beyond that. And what's been fascinating to me is that over the last 10 years, you've seen this deeper interaction between the federal governments. Um, When a Mexican cabinet minister arrives in Washington, there's interest. When a Canadian shows up, you know, sometimes they ask, well, you know, is anybody really going to pay attention? Um, And so I think that you've seen that, that, that deepening, that interweaving of the two economies, societies, political systems. Absolutely true. Um, Mexico matters to the United States in a way that it didn't 20 years ago. But even 20 years ago, I mean, go back to 1994, for example. You know, 1994, when the peso crisis happened, the uh, Clinton administration was adamant that the rescue package needed to come through and did everything it could to make that happen, successfully so, because they recognized that the fallout would be disastrous for the United States. We're now beyond that. We're now in a situation where it's not just if Mexico fails, then the United States gets hurt. It's that if Mexico ceases to cooperate in the same way that they've been doing for the last decade, then this is not good for the United States. However, we're in a situation, we're in an era where certainly here in the United States, the president's uh, office matters a great deal, in particular because he's been so strident in foreign policy declarations. And in Mexico, of course, because of this factor that we already talked about of centralization of power, Andrés Manuel holds a lot of the reins of power and he holds a lot of the cards in terms of foreign policy. But just to switch it back again, Andrés Manuel isn't particularly interested in foreign policy. He's much more focused on what happens within Mexico. And so I think the answer that he gave that day in the interview where he said, I disagree with the decision, but I'm not going to interfere in the domestic political decisions of the United States. A classic Mexican, even pre-Easter response, the Estrada or the Carranza doctrines, whichever one you choose, and to say, you know, I'm not going to get involved in this. He gave, interestingly, exactly the same uh, response when he was asked about human rights abuses in Venezuela. Um, He's not interested in foreign policy. He's interested in what goes on at at the domestic level. And so having distractions on the foreign policy front, whether it's in the bilateral relationship, is not good for him. So he wants to have smooth sailing as much as possible, unless there are undue provocations. And this is the point that I think you and I and many others have made over the, the past year or so, is let's not you know, poke the tiger. Let's not um, provoke Mexico, because they want to get along with us. 
So let's just let that be the situation, which is much better for us all. You know, in a way, you could though argue that Mexico sort of been inoculated this against this because since they were sort of the punching bag uh, during the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign, you might argue that the Mexicans have sort of gotten used to this. So by now, it's almost hard to, to summon up a tweet or a statement that would be so over the top, like, "Okay, now we're done with the United States." I almost see this weird inversion happening, where politically speaking. What goes on in the United States is not as important in Mexico than vice versa. You know that that what happens in Mexico is now politically, you know, particularly on the Republican side, sort of a third rail of politics proposing, you know, immigration reform, et cetera, et cetera,、um, which it seems to be a switch. You know, yeah, a、I、lot mean, of the anti-Yankee、uh, sentiment has kind of disappeared. In I、Mexico. think we've become much more numbed to it, and I think in Mexico that's true. However, I would say. Then, if you look at the、uh, public opinion numbers, you know Mexicans have a much less favorable opinion of the United States in general now than they did before the Trump presidency began, and that's something that's worrying to me because that can—I mean, right now it doesn't really matter because if we see a change in attitude from the current administration or a change of administration here, then all of that could change. But if it goes on for too long. You know, if there is an eight-year Trump administration and those kind of provocations continue, then you could see a lasting impact. I think, and that's that. That concerns me because we've come so far over the last thirty years. You know, Mexicans used to see the United States as the enemy; they now see it as a partner, even an ally.、Um, Mexicans now have so many of their family members who either live in the United States or have lived in the United States, and of course, there's a large number, a huge number of of Americans who live in Mexico. But that it's it's not unbreakable that bond, and so what I would dearly like to see is that there is less provocation, there's less antagonism, and that in fact more people. Um, you know, in the think tank community, in academia, in business, focus a little bit more on building those bonds and making them more explicit. Because, whilst I very much agree with the thesis of, of Andrew Seeley's book, what I think has been missing over the past three decades is a conscious effort to really build those ties of friendship by anybody other than the federal governments. Although we are beginning to see some of that happening, right? The state and local levels, we're starting to get these sort of. Economic, political relationships that are sort of independent of kind of yeah. In in many ways, I mean, I, I used to make this. You pointed that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Tony Wayne, you、yeah. had about workforce development and sort of right partnerships. It just makes sense. So you got to do them. I I used to make the joke. I mean, early in the in the early days of the Trump administration, I said, you know, Trump is good for business if you're in the U.S. Mexico relations、uh, business because, of course, now everybody cares. Like it's been put on the line. It's it's in jeopardy, and so now people are coming out of the woodwork to defend it, and that's very very important. The challenge comes when you know this goes on for a long time, or even after this current period of antagonism is over. Are people going to stay engaged? Well, Duncan, you revealed our secret here. This is our job security here.、So、you sort of Absolutely. You gave gave it away. But、um, thanks very much for being on the show. I look forward to having you back.、It's、a fascinating conversation. I, I know we'll have a lot more to talk about as as the、uh, um, Amlo's presidency unfolds, and we see which direction it goes. Thanks a lot, Richard. 